This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown. I'm Tony Crowsdale. And with us today we have... Uh, Christian Hunold. And Christian, who are you? I'm an avid uh, wildlife photographer, doing most of my work in Philadelphia. Um, and I also teach environmental politics at uh, Drexel University. And he's a sexy beast. I, I got to know Christian uh, through... Um, grid when I was writing for Grid Magazine and Christian's pictures kept popping up in my articles. Yeah. We got together and had lunch and uh, later on we coordinated a lot more um, around article topics and picture taking for Grid. And then I sort of at some point figured out what Christian did for a living. You live to take pictures or no? Work I'm a, to take no, pictures no, or? no. I'm at least not. That's not what I would tell my department head. Right? Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a I'm a working professional political scientist um, at Drexel and I. Write about and teach about environmental politics, environmental political theory. But I think the the wildlife photography, which is something that I started doing more regularly about five or six years ago, and because I am doing it because I have a day job and can't really spend a lot of time traveling to places that are you know far afield, the Serengeti or anything like that. So <laughs> the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge at Tinicum opposite the Philadelphia airport is sort of my go-to place. Um, so I, I end up um, spending a lot of time taking pictures of the animals in, in Philadelphia, anything from deer to warblers. Um, just found some uh, some baby yellow throats and uh, yellow warblers this morning, in fact. Um, so anyway, that opened sort of um, a, a lot of interesting material and ideas about um, urban wildlife and the sort of non-human life and ecosystems in the built environment. Yeah, and that sort of has fed back into my interest in environmental politics where I'm now thinking about doing a, a book project on the politics of urban wildlife. Ooh. Yeah, mm. using Philadelphia as a case. Um, and it'll be great because by the time your book comes out, this podcast will be the biggest thing in urban wildlife. Exactly. <laughs> to, yeah. to, for yeah. your book. Anyone who's anyone yeah. in urban I gotta wildlife. Say, <laughs> I got to say that, you know, I have lots of friends who, a lot of birders, you know, amateur photographers, um, and a lot of them are really pretty damn good, but Christian is, is exceptionally good. And like, I remember we met, it was funny, it's kind of like when your friends meet each other and they're friends and you're, you're happy about that. Like, we went, because we were taking, this is an own, its own separate topic we should do someday, um, but taking pictures of rough-winged swallows. Yeah. That, yeah. That's that, the first time we met. Yes, at the that, water treatment plant. At, at this wastewater treatment plant. So instead of migrating south for the winter, um, these rough-winged swallows stay all winter eating midges that breed in the wastewater outflow from this, or it's not wastewater, but treated water outflow from this treatment plant um, that stays, you know, unfrozen all year. So it's also the midges keep coming out of it. And so the swallows can stick around just in this little like concrete, this area of like concrete pools, a cloud of swallows zipping around eating the midges. Yeah. 
talk about uh, you know about non-human life in the built environment. I mean, it yeah, was like yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's in the midst of a, like a complete industrial wasteland. That's right. Yeah, concrete yeah. swallows where I grew up, yeah. more or less. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go home or something, and and. I forget who said the hoop, like, hey, you want to go to Barnegat? But like, yeah, I was going to, <laughs> to Barnegat to uh, ducks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I jumped in with yeah, you, yeah, and yeah. then like had to get my bike back from there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Long, awesome. long that's, day. that's what's awesome about like when you're like a long day in December. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you love nature, it's like, like you like nature, I like nature. We're we're friends now. You know, this is kind of like how it goes. Yeah. <clears throat> so we're gonna listen to a piece about Project Squirrel. Sure. My name is Steve Sullivan. I'm the curator of urban ecology for the Chicago Academy of Sciences and its Peggy Notabart Nature Museum, and I'm the director of Project Squirrel. So tell me a little bit about Project Squirrel and its history. Yeah, so Project Squirrel was actually founded way back in 1994 by uh, Joel Brown and some of his colleagues as a way to look specifically at tree squirrels in the Chicagoland region. Uh, Chicagoland in particular is interesting because it has a variety of sciurids, uh, the, the family name for squirrels, uh, sure. which include uh, gray squirrels and fox squirrels, but also includes um, chipmunks, groundhogs, and has the potential to include uh, red squirrels and Franklin squirrels. May I ask about one you didn't mention, which is what about the flying squirrels? Flying squirrels are also in there. Um, oftentimes, we uh, they're they're overlooked simply because they're nocturnal. And as uh, diurnal primates, we tend not to look at those those little nocturnal things as much. But they certainly are here in this region. And uh, there are some neighborhoods that have uh, old growth oak groves, sometimes on the order of three and four hundred year old trees, uh, that are very productive for flying squirrels. Project Squirrel went quiescent for a few years, and then. Uh, in about mid-2000s or so, I took over and uh, reinvigorated the program, extended the program throughout not just Chicagoland but throughout Illinois, and at this point it's become an international program uh, in that Canada as well as we get a few observations from the UK are coming in. Really though, it's, it's, an, it's a United States-based program where anybody of any age can look outside their window and tell us what they see. And importantly, a lot of times we like to report positive findings. If, if I see a squirrel, I want to tell Project Squirrel. But a lot of times, citizen scientists forget that it's important to also report negative findings. I looked out my window and I didn't see a squirrel. Mm. Perhaps the best example of this was a woman uh, living in a, in a home that was relatively new construction on a former cornfield. And, of course, for the past several hundred years, this area has not had trees. Before it was a cornfield, it was a prairie. And so squirrels simply were not resident in that part of the country. And But she wanted to participate in Project Squirrel, and very dutifully she reported all of the uh, habitat parameters that we request on our on our forms. And at the end she said, and I saw no squirrels in any of this. No squirrels, no squirrels, year after year after year, no squirrels. Um, but finally... One year, she emailed me directly with, with uh, lots of exclamation points in the subject line saying, we have a squirrel. And uh, how exciting is this that finally the, the, the little saplings that people had planted along the parkways and that she had planted in her house had matured enough to uh, make it so squirrels felt like they had a refuge. They didn't necessarily have a food source from these trees, but the trees could be in a, what we call an escape substrate, a place where they could run and hide from predators. Huh. So then the question comes, 
Well, what kind of squirrel was it? Was it resident? Did it breed? Uh, what do you think its food sources are? And by tracking the presence and absence of squirrels and when they colonize and when they aren't in your yard as frequently as when they are in your yard, this really helps us understand the seasonal dynamics of uh, of what we call a sentinel organism, an organism that can tell us kind of what's going on in our neighborhoods uh, with all of the animals and and a good number of the plants. Yeah, you mentioned that it was it sort of went dormant for a little while and then got reinvigorated when you got involved. What, what drew you to, to to start up Project Squirrel again? Well, um, Project Squirrel throughout its time has been uh, used to generate data for a variety of PhD theses. And uh, so that's part of the reason that I reinvigorated it. But also it really fits with my own paradigm of, of how I want to go about connecting other people with nature. At its core, I think it becomes an educational program that helps people look around themselves and say, you know, what really is in this neighborhood with me? This isn't just my neighborhood. This is also a squirrel's neighborhood. Uh, increasingly, our neighborhoods are becoming coyotes' neighborhoods and skunk neighborhoods. And uh, to this end, one of the things that I added to Project Squirrel uh, was not just the strict squirrel observations, but also I will email uh, many of the Project Squirrel participants back uh, with a survey that talks about their uh, levels of knowledge, their attitudes towards nature, and their opinions about nature so that I can track things such as my hypothesis is once you learn how to differentiate a gray squirrel from a, from a fox squirrel, I suspect that you will then be better at differentiating uh, similar species of birds from, another, from one another, that you will have a slightly elevated knowledge about what's going on in the, in the world around us as it affects nature, things like this. And You're sort of testing squirrel observations as a gateway drug to, to being naturalist. There you go. There you go. And, and quite frankly... Aren't squirrels really that gateway to becoming a naturalist? Because for for arguably the majority of Americans, squirrels are the most intense interaction that many of us will have with a bona fide wild animal. You know, we see dogs and cats on the street all the time. I said wild animal. I should say wild mammal. Just because we okay. see we see yep. dogs and cats on the street all the time. You know, we're we're eating cows and and uh, you know watching horses pull anachronistic carriages around the city and things like this. Um, but in fact, when you actually get up close to a wild mammal and are able to really look at it, sort of interact with it, have it pay attention to you, and do this for a decent duration of time, for most people, that's going to be a squirrel. It's not going to be a coyote. It's not going to be a badger. It's not going to be a woodchuck. It's going to be one of these tree squirrels. So, and I, I, I totally accept the principle, and I, 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 I agree with it. I just want to challenge or just ask about um, something that I've recently read about, which I had known about sort of the intentional introduction of gray squirrels into urban areas. Um, and so the, the you know, and, and I, I sort of look at Philadelphia, which I know better than Chicago, let's say, and I, and I can see places where we have wooded corridors from the suburbs where I can imagine those squirrels would be the, would have spread without direct human intervention. Mm -hmm. um, but then we have plenty of spots where I've read sort of the history of squirrels being specifically introduced into urban parks around Philadelphia and, and other places. Could you comment a little bit on yeah. sort of the, the sort of the introduced versus naturally extant sort of nature of, of, of squirrels in cities? 
Right. So one of the one of the big goals of Project Squirrel is to document the range shifts between gray squirrels and fox squirrels. Gray squirrels are thought of as forest interior specialists. They like to have lots of trees around them and they're they're constantly harvesting nuts from these trees and from the caches of other squirrels in that forest. So as a result, gray squirrels are constantly interacting with other squirrels. Fox squirrels, on the other hand, are often thought of as forest edge specialists. They don't necessarily see other squirrels very often, but they're bigger, they're brightly colored, and they are going to interact with predators on a regular basis. And so when gray squirrels and fox squirrels are sort of thrown together in the same place at the same time, uh, a variety of interesting interactions happen. Although the fox squirrel is larger, it is subordinate to this smaller gray squirrel. And as we move squirrels around through direct human action, as well as through indirect action, say we plant trees along an interstate that allows squirrels to migrate from one place to another, um, we're, we're abnormal, maybe not unnatural, but they're abnormal. And, yeah. um, and this is changing the population dynamics of the squirrels in our neighborhoods. Uh, so, in fact, it seems like most cities are becoming more and more gray. That is, they have more gray squirrels and fewer fox squirrels, whereas okay. the country remains good habitat for fox squirrels. Now, interestingly, also because of our urbanizing behavior and possibly because we're intentionally transporting animals, um, the range of both gray and fox squirrels is extending north and it's extending west. And uh, some of the westward expansion is obviously simply a direct result of humans picking up a squirrel, chucking it in a box, putting that on a truck, and then opening that box when they get to, say, Oregon and Washington or California. Mm -hmm. uh, fox squirrels in particular are major pests in certain nut-growing regions of California, and that's because we took them there. We simply, we, we literally picked up live squirrels from the east, eastern United States, put them in a box, and then opened that box once we got to the West Coast. Well, are, there, are there no native arboreal squirrels in, on the West Coast? There are native arboreal squirrels in some of these regions, but not in all of these regions. Um, most okay. of the nut-growing regions of California, there are not native arboreal squirrels. Um, okay. However, in the Oregon-Washington area, there is what's called the western gray squirrel, uh, Cyrus gricius. And this squirrel looks... Uh, to the uninitiated, just like a gray squirrel. It's it's a silver gray dorsum with a dense, bushy silver gray tail and a clean white uh, breast. Um, now, if you look at the eastern gray squirrel, Cyrus carolinensis, um, it has spots of, of olive or rust uh, in various places, especially right down the, the dorsal area of the pellage and, and uh, yeah, right sometimes the, the belly. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the belly can even be uh, quite rusty. So they're they're a little more colorful or a little more dirty than these western grays, but they are also more aggressive. They can dominate water supplies. They can interact with the native trees in that region in a way that is destructive to the trees, sometimes girdling, sometimes simply destroying the, the fruits. Huh. Um, and as a result of this introduction of squirrels, in the case of something like California, nut prices simply go up for, for humans. But in the case of places where there are native western gray squirrels, we are losing biodiversity as a direct result of this squirrel introduction. Hmm. Okay. Now, your question also got to you know moving squirrels around Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, places where 
you know, we've, we wanted to put squirrels. Consider the primordial condition of the United States where there were beech forests, um, uh, also oak, chestnut, some of these other, you know, large stature masting trees. Masting means, uh, trees that produce nuts on an irregular but very, uh, high density basis. Okay. And they would extend basically from the coast all the way to, uh, the Midwest in more or less unbroken stands. And, you know, we can, we can debate whether or not unbroken stands are a natural condition or the result of, of genocide of American Indians or things like this. Sure. But yeah. the, the, the fact remains that there were a lot of big old trees making a lot of nuts. Yeah. And, uh, gray squirrels, fox squirrels, and red squirrels were native throughout this. So if, if we were to say, are they native to all of Pennsylvania? Are they native to all of Illinois? The answer would, would broadly be yes. Now certainly, more of Pennsylvania is forested than, say, Illinois, which is largely tall grass prairie. So there are certainly going to be pockets where squirrels seldom, if ever, occurred in some of these areas. Now, remember, though, that prior to World War II, basically, uh, we didn't do a lot with concentrated animal feedlots. We didn't do a lot with industrialized animal farming. And so uh, the further back in history we go from World War II the increasing proportion of wild game there was in our diets. Yeah. And so, in fact, squirrels were an important part of our food. And there are a lot of communities that have documented the fact that squirrels were here, and now, and suddenly they weren't. Usually by the middle of the 1800s, they were gone. And it's because, one, we chopped down all the trees to make our houses, and two, we ate all the squirrels that were around. Yeah. Now, come... uh Later in the 1900s, <clears throat> squirrels arguably had been absent from some of these areas for maybe as much as a century. Um, we began to have an affinity for squirrels for a variety of reasons. They were symbolic. They were cute. They were play toys. Uh, we had had a, a more uh, well-established urban culture and ways of feeding those those urban people. Um, and in fact, in in one town uh, that I've I've heard talked about, the absence of squirrels uh, was uh, one reason that the the town members were so lascivious, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and so, for for whatever reason, whether whether we want to uh, tame the uh, the men of town of the town or whether we just want cute things for our kids to look at, uh, <laughs> we went on a systematic. What were they supposed to be doing with the squirrels? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Maybe they just, maybe they just needed to get out and spend more time shooting at squirrels. I guess. Right. Um, but we did intentionally then introduce, or I might say reintroduce, squirrels to many of these regions that they'd been exterminated from. Now, certainly, if this is a central Illinois town square, there probably hadn't been squirrels there, but there were probably squirrels nearby. We went and trapped them and dropped them off. Although, in some cases, there are records that... You know, towns in the Midwest had to go clear down to Oklahoma to get their squirrels because all of the squirrels in the region around had been completely exterminated. Okay. And this is a this is a a theme that repeats itself with organism after organism. You know, consider the white-tailed deer. There are more white-tailed deer in the United States today than there ever have been, and in fact, in the in the 1960s and 70s, in many of our our states, the white-tailed deer was non-existent. We had killed every last one. Same thing goes on with the turkey, with various fish species. 
And so this reintroduction within, to it, within its natural range, I would argue, is, is it's an appropriate behavior, or, or at least it's a bane behavior. So anybody that's dumped gray squirrels and fox squirrels in the mid-1900s into some park in, in Pennsylvania or Chicago, that's fine from, okay. a, from, a, from a conservation standpoint. Anybody that dumped them in California or Oregon is a jerk. <laughs> and it's our responsibility as conservationists to go track down all of those offspring and kill every last one of them so that we can promote the integrity and continuity of those ecosystems. I got you. This, I think this might segue into another question that I have, which is actually what got me on this whole idea of talking to someone about squirrels, is that a, another friend was like, you know, you should look into, he put it, phenotypic variation in urban squirrels, and what yep. we meant by that is, is you know, different colors of squirrels. You know, the, the black ones, the browner, sort of chocolate-looking ones, the regular ones, or what we um, the gray ones. Uh, and sort of, you know, those as an urban phenomenon, and, and, and things I've read anecdotally, about increasing proportions of the darker squirrels in urban settings. And I thought um, through Project Squirrel or other sources, do you have um, any insight into that? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, just last week in the Chicago Tribune, there were a series of articles uh, that focused exclusively on black squirrels that are running around. And it's it's interesting how we as humans, we really like the freaks that are out there. If If all the squirrels were black and a gray one with a white belly showed up, that's the one we would love. But since... Most of the squirrels in our cities are gray with white bellies. When the black one shows up, that's the one we love. And uh, black squirrels in the United States, in the eastern United States at least, are quite simply gray squirrels with a black hair dye, a black hair job, I should say. It's, it's not dyed, it's natural. But they are they are Cyrus carolinensis, and uh, they're melanistic. And in the same way that, um, you know, if you breed two dogs or two humans together and you get a dark-coated offspring, that offspring has a, uh, a gene that is often dominant, or at least co-dominant, and um, can then be spread and, and uh, perpetuated throughout the, uh, the local population. One of the interesting anecdotes, and I, I don't know how, how much this has really been quantified, is that the National Zoo went up to Canada and got some black squirrels because they were interesting, and uh, eventually, as squirrels will do, they got loose. And there has been a documentation of, of an increase in black squirrels in the D.C. area, uh, and especially in some of the suburbs. It's thought that black squirrels thermoregulate slightly better than gray squirrels, and so we would expect in places with prolonged cold periods that gray squirrels would, would be more common. And, in fact, that does seem to hold out in the Project Squirrel data. And, and just to soak up, just to, to, to use layman's terms, what we're saying is that, sure. that they absorb heat better, and so they'd... Yeah, on, 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 a, on a cold day, black squirrels are, are going to absorb a tiny bit more uh, energy from the sun, and they're going to stay a little bit warmer than are their gray counterparts. And, um, and so as a result, in places where there's uh, long winters, such as the border of, of the United States and Canada, we expect there to be more black gray squirrels. And sure enough, when we look at Project Squirrel data, we do see that there are more black gray squirrels in those northern areas. Now, that said... Uh, it, ha it has been interesting to see an increase in the anecdotal accounts of both black and white squirrels. And white squirrels are typically simply albinistic or leucistic gray squirrels. Certainly, fox squirrels <clears throat> have every bit as much possibility of, of being either black or white. And in fact, the fox squirrel is called Cyrus niger, 
black. Yeah, I noticed that just now, yeah. And that's because uh, some of the ones on the in the southeast, in the Carolinas, are black, and those were the first ones described. But it turns out that most of the fox squirrels throughout the United States are relatively uniform in coloration, despite the fact that there are a variety of races and subspecies. They tend to be grizzled on the back with rusty bellies. Now, that said, the further south you go, uh, the bigger they get and the more colorful they get. There's uh, the Sherman's fox squirrel, which is still Cyrus niger, but it's this large, pale uh, squirrel with a black mask. It looks almost like a cross between a, a cat, a raccoon, and a squirrel. But although there is an increasing number of reports of, of both black and white squirrels, I haven't found anything statistically significant in the regions that I'm getting reports from that shows that indeed those phenotypes are, are becoming more common. People are talking about them a lot, and they certainly attract a lot of attention, but numerically they, they occur about as much as we would expect them to, given normal genetic ratios and things like that. Okay. Uh, that said, one interesting thing is is that the white morphs oftentimes don't last as long as the black morphs, which is somewhat unsurprising. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the white ones are, are more subject to, to trauma from the sun, and they're also, they, they stick out to predators. And everything is happy to eat a squirrel. The squirrels taste good. Even my picky daughter likes to eat squirrels. And so, you know, they're going to pick off those, those white ones. Whereas the black ones are arguably more or less as camouflage as the gray ones. And so once one establishes, if you see an adult gray squirrel, chances are, or an adult black gray squirrel, chances are you're going to continue to see that one for a couple of years. Talk a little bit about the fox squirrel, gray squirrel sort of cat population dynamics that, that I read about on your website. It was really fascinating. Yeah, so we talked about the fact that um, gray squirrels are used to interspecific competition. They, they can beat up squirrels really well, whereas fox, uh, fox squirrels can beat up predators really well. So one of the hypotheses that we are that, that we we sort of start with we're not necessarily trying to demonstrate it but we sort of expect to see this is that in places where predators are more common fox squirrels will also be more common because gray squirrels don't deal as well with predators on the other hand where there is predator suppression we would expect that gray squirrels do well because they can then suppress the fox squirrels and to some extent, this has been demonstrated in the fact that cities seem to be turning gray, whereas the country seems to be remaining uh, fox squirrel habitat. And one of the things that we're going to uh, see if we can correlate that with is leash laws and dog catcher records. Uh, if we have more feral cats and more loose dogs, we would expect there to be more pressure on the squirrels. Now, importantly, as we talk about these domesticated predators, it's important for people to realize that a predator need not catch an animal or kill an animal in order to have the influence of a predator. For example, uh, if we think about human behavior, you know, when we walk out, out, of a, out of a grocery store, we stop at the edge, we look both ways, and then we cross the street. And we usually do so very carefully because it's quite busy there in front of a grocery store. That said, I doubt any of us have ever seen anything dead in in those lanes between the grocery store and the parking lot. But we still behave as if death is an imminent possibility. Therefore, the, the threat of predation has modified our behavior. That's a good example of use, yeah. 
And uh, so that's actually another thing that Project Squirrel studies is how do squirrels perceive their environment? What is the threat level? Um, we study what's called the ecology of fear. And uh, on the website, it has an area where you can participate in what's called GUD research or giving up density research. And put very simply, a squirrel that is in a safe place will eat more food than a squirrel that is in a, not, in, in a potentially dangerous place. And so as we put food-baited stations progressively far from a tree, we can document how, how dangerous a given area is perceived to be by a squirrel, regardless of how we see it. And in fact, your yappy little dog or your gigantic and friendly and very slow St. Bernard may both have the exact same effect on squirrel dynamics, squirrel population dynamics, as would a coyote that can actually catch a squirrel. How can people get involved with Project Squirrel if listeners want to want to take part? Yeah, um, I think, and, and frankly, thousands of our, our friends think that Project Squirrel is a wonderful opportunity for people of all ages to get outside, whether it's by simply looking out your window or by actually walking around in your neighborhood and just stopping and looking wherever you happen to be and recording a variety of characteristics from your habitat and noting whether you see squirrels or not. You can do this through our website, which is projectsquirrel.org, or you can do it on our app, which is available for Android or iPhone, and record the data instantly there. And by doing this, you will be contributing to a body of research that I like to, to liken to a, a restaurant review. An individual response has more or less little value. But as we get a, a body of responses from a given place about a given site, we can really tell, is this a good restaurant, is this a bad restaurant? And the same with these, with these squirrel observations. As everybody contributes their observations, we will really be able to tell how many squirrels are in this neighborhood, what are they doing, what is the environmental impact on the squirrels, and what is the environmental impact of the squirrels on the rest of the habitat. So Project Squirrel has been used by um, elementary school teachers and high school teachers. It's enjoyed by adults, and hopefully all of your listeners will enjoy it as well. Neat. Thank you very much. So I guess that'll – do you have anything else you want to ask or add on the squirrel topics? Yeah, I, think, I think we've had a good time for a podcast. I think we did have a pretty good time for a podcast. I agree. And I think before we go much further – I think it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, our synanthropic organism of the week is the gray squirrel. Absolutely. Okay. Totally. We, I mean, it's, it's something, there's the part about us actively introducing them, but also, and I guess fox squirrels too, but we're going to pick one species, we're picking the gray squirrel. We could look at the, the idea not just of them being inter, intentionally introduced, but of them doing particularly well around people and our urban um, habitats that we create that are our wooded parks, our tree-lined streets, our, our suburbs with bird feeders. They've power been, lines. They like power lines. They like power lines. Yep. They've been uh, introduced in like other places in the world, in like England and I think other places in Europe. They got a problem with them in England. Yeah, 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 yeah. In England, they're uh, they've almost wiped out the uh, the native red squirrel, um, which is a lot less aggressive um, than the uh, North American gray squirrel. There are a few places in Wales, I understand, where the red squirrel is hanging on. Um, people are very excited about this. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, it's the Welsh it's, marches are defended yes. by the red squirrel. That's right. Well, it's not, it's not clear whether ultimately the, the great squirrel can sort of be beaten back, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just 
slightly more aggressive, a little bit bigger. Synanthropic organism. Well, we were talking also amongst ourselves a little bit about sort of the the enmity that people have for gray squirrels. That people, that like, I kind of like them. I mean, Gigi can't stand them. Yeah, and yeah, lot. people hate squirrels. I guess they uh, they eat your tomatoes and your your apples and yeah, I mean, where they can the, find and they're, you know, they're survivors, obviously. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, they do all that, and they've done that. You know, when I was at the environmental center and we had a garden plot, they would hammer our stuff too, and you know, they eat through your bird feeders and your trash can lids. I mean, they're wildlife and they're cute, and I like you know, and they're native-ish. <laughs> and I, I, I like them. I mean, but don't get me wrong, I love when I see a red tail hawk carrying one. Yes, you know? and we have a wonderful, I think by the time this is, yes, we will make sure that that picture is still going to be on our website of a great picture Christian took of a red tail hawk carrying. That's right, yeah. Yes, it was one of the, one of the Franklin Institute hawks, yeah, that uh, is a part of their diet pigeons and squirrels. There you go. Yep. And so, rats. In, in, part of the, an interesting urban. Food web. If we ever wanted to diagram the nutrient flows, something else that I, you know, a topic to segue into with Christian, especially uh, two ideas. One, we like talking about citizen science on this podcast, um, but also as certain urban wildlife, as as we were saying in the interview, is sort of the gateway drug to environmental involvement or na- involvement with nature. And I'm kind of curious, Christian, you talk a little bit about that but i mean you've done some research let's say gardening and sort of as a gateway into ecological citizenship or involvement mm-hmm. um and you've been studying people who are involved with the red t- urban red tail hawks in philadelphia yeah so, so in, in philadelphia i've been um, sort of studying um and interacting with hanging out i suppose as well um a group of people who are, I would say, primarily middle-aged women, not exclusively. Um, it's sort of a somewhat of a diverse group. It's not birders. I mean, there are a couple of birders, but it's mostly sort of people who enjoy watching these, these hawks. So in Philadelphia, at the Franklin Institute, which is a, a natural history museum here Where in Philadelphia. Where you feel the fun. Sorry? You feel the fun. You can do all sorts of things there. <laughs> Walk through a giant heart, I understand. That, that by itself, as a... That's right. Slogan doesn't quite. Yeah. Well, so, but, but that's a slogan, or at least it was. Uh, that's right. So, at the Franklin Institute, you could feel the fun. But so, in 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 two thousand eight or in two thousand nine, a, a pair of uh, red-tailed hawks ended up nesting on uh, one of the window ledges of the of the museum. And the museum, of course, being a, a museum of natural history, among other things, um, or sort of a science natural science museum. Yeah. Um, decided to sort of capitalize on this, and they installed a webcam. Uh, trained on the nest um, and uh, it was broadcast on the web and attracted sort of a wide following in Philly and other places um, around the country and around the world and and there's sort of a group of people in Philadelphia who then sort of actually physically go to the nest and take pictures and hang out and report on what's going on they have a a Facebook page and so so in some ways this is um, this struck me as interesting because it sort of um, resonates with sort of some interesting work in in the environmental political theory that I sort of read in my life as, as an academic where people are sort of saying, well, look, you know, American environmentalism has this long history of caring about wilderness and about caring and caring for and being concerned about sort of nature as untouched by humans and wanting to preserve that. And the city is always sort of taking a little bit of a backseat, right? It's sort of seen as compromised. It's the built environment. It's 
sort of full of these sort of trash animals that are vilified in all kinds of ways or yeah or like squirrels bird. yeah like squirrels and the right unholy trio that's right well no the the unholy do you know what the unholy trio is uh, I just learned this thing okay from no I have no idea. It is pigeons, starlings, and house sparrows. Uh, what about rats? Why aren't rats? It's for birders. Oh, for yeah. birders. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We just someone mentioned yes. the other. And birders another, are all another episode. Yeah, birders. I think there's there's a well, you know, there's an interesting work on uh, some of the parallels, shall we say, between um, um, the language used by birders and the language used by Republicans when they talk about immigrants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> surprising, surprising parallel. But that's that's probably a topic for a podcast uh, all on its own. The unholy trio. So these so these these hawk watchers, I think. So in some ways, they're sort of just interesting watching watching these birds and you know sort of end up treating it and developing sort of narratives that are a bit like you know sort of soap opera style um, narratives. But but the hawks end up being. A sort of a pretty interesting gateway for people to think about um, these sort of larger ecological connections, right? So yeah. one of the sort of health conditions that urban hawks, urban raptors, not just red-tailed hawks, but peregrine falcons and Cooper's maybe hawks. yeah, Cooper's hawks and maybe even bald eagles increasingly as they're sort of moving closer to urban areas are suffering from a sort of, you know, bioaccumulated um, poisons yeah. um, from... Uh, rodent control, right? So cities use oh. um, uh, poisons to to poison the rats and the you see this mice. with um, other predators like out west they have, with like bobcats yeah, and yeah. cougars and stuff That's like right. that. And so and so yeah. and so the idea is right. So the, the the raptors will sort of you know eat enough rats that were poisoned or have some poison left in their system, and so it sort of yeah. gradually builds up and weakens their immune systems and makes them sick and so on. Oh. Um, and so this this sort of one of the ways I think. That, so one of the things that was sort of interesting to me. Was that this was sort of a group of people who were engaging with these these birds that were sort of living in an urban environment that met all their sort of ecological needs, right? An ample food supply of rats and pigeons and sure enough, um, goslings and you know all sorts of things. It's sort of a pretty you know squirrels. Like food constraint is not the, the, what limits the sort of viability <laughs> they of, got the, enough to of eat. the that's right, yeah, of of the environment. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah. So there are really interesting campaigns about um, trying to sort of persuade city governments to not use rodenticides as much, or different kinds of rodenticides, or think about different ways of controlling rodents to the extent that they're sort of um, really a problem at all anyway. Because a lot of the time, this sort of rodent control is driven more by people's perceived anxieties and fears than yeah. real problems as far as I can tell and then sort of right tying it together and saying look the, 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 the raptor is actually sort of part of the solution right they catch a lot of rats yeah. and they catch a lot of pigeons and so you should are there ways that we can make the built environment more hospitable to these kinds of species yeah. as a sort of more quasi natural way of controlling species that maybe we don't like as much right or that we yeah. think are are sort of problems. Um, so really sort of interesting discussions around that. And so other kinds of discussions too. So one of the years that this nest was in place at the, the Franklin Institute, a couple of chicks in, in midsummer, the young birds, once they fledged, had sort of died in collisions with uh, window glass two years um, ago, at, yeah. the, at the college. Uh, was it the Moore, Moore, co college. Moore College of Art and Design? Of art students. <laughs> yeah, man. Hawk killers. That's right. And so, wow. um, wait a minute. And so the the discussion among the hawk watchers very Don't quickly. Give up on them yet? That's right. Very quickly turned to sort of I think pretty critical questions about are there ways that we can 
pay attention to design, um, architecture, um, window design, yeah. exterior surfaces of buildings um, that are friendlier to birds, perhaps, right? Um, the problem with, with raptors and maybe young birds in particular in general is that they can't really tell the difference between sort of reality and reflection of reality in a plate glass window. So yeah. when they're sort of flying, chasing after something, they're liable to just collide with um, the window, which typically then, you know, they break their neck. And this is so. a big source of, or a big sink for, or a big source of mortality for urban birds or just migratory birds passing through Correct. cities. So Correct. So most, so, the, just the raptors, so it seems yeah. to be the case that the raptors that survive figure it out, right? You, yeah. don't, see, you don't see sort of a, a lot of adult hawks flying into windows, but obviously, you know, it's... It takes it, some figuring out. It takes some figuring out and you often yeah. don't get a sort of a second chance. And so... There was then a sort of pretty concerted effort to persuade the college to do something about these windows, which they did. The, the art students ended up designing some some window sort of banners, hangings. Those art students coming through. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they did. And so the, the college hung up. Guy from a, the punk world can't start throwing rocks at art students. No, you know? no, no. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was, it was a, I remember because I, yeah, another connection with what I used to write about. Um, I did an article about bird collisions, um, about starting off, starting mainly with Temple University. Uh, we talked about, it, I think, in an early episode. If you think of what causes birds to run into windows, it's usually reflected greenery that they would want right. to land on. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you, college campuses are, are just perfect for that because you have a whole lot of buildings surrounded with man, like manicured bushes and trees and yeah. stuff. Um, so there's a whole lot of reflected greenery. And so with a temple, they were doing work to, to put window films, like so stick on stuff with patterns that the, wind, the birds would see and recognize that there was something there. Right. Um, and so they, they used art a design competition with art students to do it. At Moore, they had, what do they call them, scrims, or like the proper term for it, uh, sort of like artwork that was, that it's like sort of cut out. Textile. Textile. Yeah. Right that they had and they were able to hang that in front of the window right. and, and so that therefore indicate something to the birds. So in both cases you sort of had this nice yeah. boat, like opportunity for design um, to do something ecological in a way. Yeah, I think what's interesting about it is it sort of gets people thinking about, well first of all, that there is sort of non-human life in the city that has yeah. already made its, so it's carved out a place for itself in a way. Um, but obviously, we, we've never ever really designed cities with that in mind, sure. right? Or with it in mind in sort of a, a, a control kind of way, right? Let's design buildings to keep the rats out or to <laughs> make it difficult for pigeons to land and, and yeah, those yeah, kinds yeah, of... That, yeah. that, that sort of deterrent kind of design. But we've never really um, had to think constructively about um, possibilities of designing architecture or urban infrastructure generally that might turn out to be sort of you know, actively inviting or accommodating to uh, non-human life. And I think yeah. there's there's a little bit of a shift there maybe going on at the moment where people are sort of shifting out of out of the vermin narrative to sort of saying, well, look, if, if you know, in this ever more urbanized world, if, if non-urban places are increasingly given over to to food production or to more human settlements, then are there ways to make urban areas themselves more accommodating, more inviting, more hospitable to, to non-human species and to what kinds of species and what are their requirements and how might design be able to uh, to, to respond to that yeah. proactively. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, sort of 
relates to what Steve was talking about in the squirrel interview about that these are not just our neighborhoods or neighborhoods. For, That's right. Yeah. Um, or they or they can be right. I mean, they can. They can be. I mean, yeah. There are ways of designing neighborhoods that make it very difficult for some of these species to exist, and yeah. ways of designing neighborhoods that make it a little bit more likely, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we're going to wrap up. Uh, we've got a whole lot of, of topic matter for an episode. Do you have any closing thoughts? If you go to the website, there'll be a nice recipe for a squirrel stew. Nice. We'll have to find something, yeah. <laughs> if, hopefully there'll be a picture of Christian on there so you can see his silvery gray dorsum. I, <laughs> I don't, yes. don't, don't make fun of his age. Eastern, Eastern no, squirrel. He's yes. a silver fox. Oh! <laughs> All right. We appreciate Christian's patience with us and, and, and everything else. You're quite so, welcome. Um, any picture you see of a red-tailed hawk on the website, Christian took. Okay. Next episode, we're going to talk to one of the coolest guys we've met in Philadelphia, Joe Perillo, who is like fisheries biologist with the city water department. Catch fish every day. pictures kept popping up in my articles yeah and then one time he corrected i remember these pictures keep popping up on my phone I'm like unannounced and oh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks Tony.